Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And everyone, welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yes, good morning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Good morning, this is Solidarity Breakfast. Hey, g'day, Kim, how are you? Good. Actually, it's gorgeous outside, which uh, always gets me in a good mood. Yeah, that's right. Daylight savings over. So we're now in norm- normal, ordinary a life experience time, and uh, the weather outside is lovely. The sky is beginning to break up into all its colours. Very nice. Yes, you're much more poetical than me. <laughs> but yes, it is nice. Uh, there's uh, Today we're going to have a... Uh, I did a chat with this uh, fellow. There were these very important people in town uh, and uh, who who are advocates, legal advocates for people with disability and... Uh, this guy that I spoke to, Dr. – oh, sorry, um, yeah, he's a doctor, isn't he? Yes. Who is he? He's a professor. A professor. Fact, of law emeritus at uh, New York Law School, and it's Dr. Michael Perlin. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, he had we had a chat about the uh, state of being in regards to legal uh, frameworks and uh, how they – fail or otherwise, people with uh, mental disability. So that's what we're going to start off, kick the show off with. We're going to then uh, go to a little chat I had with uh, Liam Ward, your friend Liam Ward, who is uh, the curator of Real Films at the upcoming Marxist conference, isn't he? Yes, yes. He's also a lecturer at RMIT in media and film. That's exactly right. And he's just recently finished his doctorate. And uh, it's all about uh, he, he, what he's done is a film. So, like, he's a film man, but he's, he's, uh, it's about, I mean, if you want the whole interview, you have to go to Showreel Podcast. But uh, it's about uh, progressive filmmaking. How do you in- interest people in progressive filmmaking? But that's not the bit that I... I'm going to play. Today I'm going to play the bit where he talks about his subject matter, which is the Chinese furniture makers in Melbourne in the 1880s, which is a fascinating intersection between racism, uh, industrial action, and uh, potentially a forgotten part of our industrial history. It's amazing. If you go on a tour around... Melbourne with him, he'll point out all these places where there's this amazing working class Chinese radical history. Yeah, and it's fantastic, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Anyway, so um, so I, I just wanted to share that because it was such a great thing. And uh, obviously this is the week that was. And then uh, after that, we're going to have a 
big conversation about the slippery nature of sexism. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Marxism 2017, Australia's biggest left-wing conference. International guests, over 100 sessions. Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th. Victorian College of the Arts. Special guest speakers from the front line against Trump. Black Lives Matter activists, Hayley Pisson and Kuri Peterson-Smith. Palestinian freedom fighter, Besson Kamini. On the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Marxism 2017. Radical Wheels, film festival, art exhibition, book launches and other cultural events. Marxism 2017, Easter weekend, April 13th to 16th, Victorian College of the Arts. Visit marxismconference.org to secure your tickets. Marxism 2017, a 3CR supporter. Well, you know about the Marxism conference that's coming up on, uh, that's the place to be for Easter weekend. Starts Thursday, goes till Sunday. Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, And we are going to have lots of international speakers. Um, Hopefully, um, uh, Bassin will be able to come. You just heard on the announcement, the Palestinian speaker, that's been a bit of a fight. It's ping-ponging back and forward. With the Australian immigration system, who is variously denying and not denying and visas. Um, we always, well, there always seems to be this problem with... Uh, Effective act- activists. Yes. Uh, never, there's never a problem when you, you know, have war criminals from Israel out to speak, but whenever you have Open people arms, from man. Open Palestine, arms. yeah. <laughs> that is an interesting contrast, isn't it? So if there is a petition going around, I would urge you to sign it because he is a freedom fighter an amazing person, and we need to fight to make sure these people who apparently are fighting for our freedom, you know, the Liberals, trying to make it so freedom that we of can... Speech. Yes, exactly, so we can say racist things. They uh, are quite hypocritical. You'll be surprised to know when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, opinions right. other than theirs. Yeah, amazing. Anyway, we'll go to the chat I had with uh, Professor Michael uh, Perlin. He uh, is, I mean, he speaks for himself. I mean, he, 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 it, it explains the reason for why I had a chat with this man because he's a really interesting guy. Your area of expertise, of course, is human rights, the law and mental disability and where they intersect, correct? That is correct. I mean, I, I actually said you sort of make like a Venn diagram. You put mental disability law in the centre of it and in the concentric circles include... Uh, international human rights law, criminal law and procedure, uh, sex offenders and, sec- and sexual autonomy, and therapeutic jurisprudence. All right. And what are the key issues in those areas? I mean, uh, is it that uh, the uh, structures... How much time do you have? Oh, well, that's right. But, sorry? I was going to say, yeah, I know that's a pretty open-ended question, but the yeah. you, you, it's quite clear that the legal uh, apparat- apparatus that we have as well as uh, general uh, social beliefs, are mm-hmm. not necessarily getting the appropriate outcomes for people with mental disability. That's absolutely right. And uh, what, I, what I'm going to be speaking about tomorrow uh, at the, to the magistrate's court is what I call sanism, which is like racism or sexism or homophobia or ethnic bigotry, uh, a, kind of pre- a kind of stereotyping prejudice, and I am been thinking about this for 35 years, and I've been writing about it for 20 years, that this is really at the core of why everything, everything we do is wrong. Uh, it's because of our distorted views of people with mental disabilities and how that has uh, in, 
incorrectly, I don't know if that's the right word, but, but, but poorly shaped the legal process. Uh, I talk about sanism. I talk about what I call pretextuality, which means the way that judges uh, very, very often will sort of urge expert witnesses to say what the judge wants to hear because it conforms with their preliminary view of the case. Uh, it's, it's called the confirmation bias. You know, I see it this way, therefore I want all evidence to come in this way. I talk about what heuristics, which is kind of a fancy word for cognitive simplifying devices that distort our thinking. Uh, when you see, when you turn on the news tonight at 11 o'clock and you hear a story about somebody who was a mental patient committed a crime, you're going to think that all mental patients are dangerous in reality. Uh, the valid and reliable research shows that people with mental disabilities commit less crimes uh, than other people. And the only time people with disabilities are in fact dangerous to others is if they're uh, in, in the midst of a psychotic episode and or are abusing alcohol and cocaine. Other drugs don't count. And uh, finally, our, our use of what I call ordinary common sense, which is very self-referential and non-reflective. I see it this way, therefore it is. I see it this way, therefore everybody sees it this way. And I think when you put all of these together and you kind of, you know, put them in a blender, uh, you have an explanation as to why our, our policies are distorted, whether we're talking about criminal law, whether we're talking about uh, institutionalization, whether we're talking about uh, civil rights law, whether we're talking about anti-discrimination law, whether we're talking about uh, areas of the civil law. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we, 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 our, our views are distorted and of... Uh, you know, our legal system just simply has not done a good job. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I can see that you've, uh, you work on uh, several fronts. You work on education, advocacy, and reform, don't you? Exactly correct. Yeah, no, I was, I, I like to tell people I was a real lawyer for 13 years before I became a professor. I was head of the public defender's office in Trenton, New Jersey, which is the state capital. I spent eight years as director of New Jersey's Division of Mental Health Advocacy, and then I became, uh, became a law professor. Uh, so I've, I've sort of walked the walk as well as talking the talk. I've, I've done everything from police court to the United States Supreme Court in terms of litigation. Uh, I've advocated all over the world uh, in my international human rights work. I've done work on every continent except Antarctica. And uh, I, I really try to educate. It's, it's all about education. And I try to do that wherever I go. Well, the thing thing is, uh, the types of cases, I mean, the law, even America, you, you have an effect, I mean, you're in Australia now, so obviously you have a reach internationally. This, these concerns are affecting people with mental disabilities right across the world. Yes. Oh, absolutely. In fact, when I wrote a book uh, five or six years ago called International Human Rights and Mental Disability Law, When the Silenced Are Heard. And it's kind of no matter where you go, it's the same thing. Yeah, we, in the cases, uh, the, the law moves like treacle in relation to the needs of individual lives. So the campaigns or uh, cases that you've run, uh, well, can you talk about any of those that you think are really significant that you'd like to talk about? The cases that I've litigated personally, yeah, you mean? Yeah, that's right. Oh, that sure. have been really um, important. Actually, it's interesting. The most important one... Uh, I did a podcast about in November, and it was just uh, put online last week. And if you're interested, uh, it's beforetheabstract.com. Okay. One word. Look up my name, Michael Perlin, and the title is Maybe They Brought in the Wrong Priest. And it's about a case I did. In the, I was 
26 or 27, which was a long time ago, uh, I was representing this guy who had been locked up for, and this is one of those things you, you wouldn't believe if, if you didn't believe me, you know what I mean? Yeah. He was locked up for 27 years without a hearing, without a lawyer. He was in his cell. He never got out of his cell in 27 years. Hmm. Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm cutting out all the good stuff because I really do, I hope you listen to the podcast. Yeah, minutes, that's right. And it's, it really is there. But basically, uh, the reason he was there was he spoke a dialect of Cyrillic that nobody underst- no, nobody uh, in, in, in the town understood. And, uh, oh, so they assumed he was stupid. Did Sorry? They, did they assume he was stupid because they couldn't understand Well, they, they, no, they assumed he was crazy. Oh, and, yeah. uh, it, uh, and he was innocent of the underlying charge. And that, that case got international publicity. That led to the creation of the Division of Mental Health Advocacy what I, that, I ran for, that I ran for eight years, which was the first time that any state provided an office to provide statewide legal services <clears throat> sorry, for people in matters involving their uh, commitment to hospital, their retention in hospital, the conditions in the hospital, or their release from hospital. And we also did, in that role, we did law reform class action cases. Uh, one of those uh, was a case called Rennie, R-E-N-N-I-E versus Klein, which was one of the first two cases in the United States that said that simply because someone is in a psychiatric hospital, that does not mean that he reta- does not does not mean he doesn't. I hate double negatives. Mm. Retain autonomy in determining what medications to take. Uh-huh. And that case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and back. Another case I did that you know I think was very very important uh, was a case called In Ray S L that sort of, that sort of talked about <clears throat> what do you do with people who have been there for so many years are no longer dangerous. There's just like nowhere for them to go. Uh, and, you know, people who had been institutionalized for 30, 40 years, and uh, their, their family is gone, their home is gone, and, you know, how do you deal with that? And I thought that was an important case. Yeah, but so I've done cases on both the criminal side and the civil side, and I think that's very important because most people in this business stay only on one side of the ledger, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think seeing both sides representing uh, people at every level from, you know, fr- from homicide cases to uh, to people who are being committed to psychiatric hospitals without any any thought about criminal charges, I think has really given me a great insights into how the whole system works. Come why only democracy and human right and freedom only for rich people, government, and for business people? Why that? Why Australia have a black history, and why Australia hiding history? Let's make it the largest walk yet. Demanding permanent protection in Australia for asylum seekers found to be refugees, closure of detention centres and freedom for all refugees. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. Hear a human rights lawyer, a teacher, a refugee and a panel of interfaith speakers. Sunday the 9th of April at the State Library in Swanson Street at 2pm with our walk through the city finishing back at the State Library by 3.30. Organised by the Refugee Advocacy Network, a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we're listening to a talk a chat I had with uh, Dr Michael Perlin. Apparently there was a whole a, a gamut of... Uh, a whole group of uh, forensic uh, lawyers in town and uh, chatting with a whole range of people and he was 
doing his stuff, talking to the magistrate court and uh, Victorian legal aid and all the rest of it. So he's he's written 31 books over his... Oh, wow. Can you imagine? Isn't that extraordinary? And he's such a cheery chap, uh, despite the fact that he's uh, working in an area that's uh, sort of like a David and Goliath uh, fight. So here's the last part of that chat. There's some fairly disturbing things that come out of America in terms of uh, the propaganda, as opposed, you know, mainstream propaganda around things like insanity pleas and stuff like that. Uh, Can you comment on that? It's very strange. Wind me me up, and I will I will talk about this forever. Um, I did insanity defense cases. I did cases involving people who had been found not guilty by reason of insanity. The first major book I wrote was called The Jurisprudence of the Insanity Defense in 1995, and it won a couple of, of really, really big deal awards at that time. So it's something that I really, you know, focus on. Let me, let me kind of give you the, you know, the, the, the ten-cent version. Yeah. Everything we think about the insanity defense is wrong. Uh, people assume it is often pled that people, that, that people skate on it. Uh, they go to a country club for a week or two, country club hospital, and are then released, and that you can sort of buy a witness to say whatever you want. That's the common wisdom. Here is the reality. The insanity defense is pled in one quarter of one percent of all felonies. It is successful in one-third of that one quarter of one percent, which means it is successful in one-twelfth of one percent. But in that category, that one-twelfth of one percent, 90%, 90%, well, 88%, I say 90% just because it's easier for the math. 90% of the time, both doctors agree there is no battle of the experts, which means that in contested cases, the insanity defense is successful in one 120th of 1% of all cases. So that's number one. Number two, if you plead the insanity defense and you, and you fail, you are found guilty, your sentence will probably be about double what it would have been had you never raised it. If you plead the insanity defense and you are successful, if the charge is a major charge, you will probably be institutionalized for about one and a half times as long as had you been sentenced for the underlying crime. But if it is a minor charge, a misdemeanor or a nonviolent felony, you will be institutionalized. And by the way, that's in maximum security. Nine times as long. Oh, my goodness. Nine times as long as had you been found guilty of the underlying charge. Uh, there is rarely this whole question of, you know, people faking it. I am probably the only person in the entire world who has read every reported insanity defense case in the United States from the beginning of time until I wrote this book. I found maybe three cases that I thought, yeah, well, maybe not. Uh, during uh, during the, when I was in practice, which was in the 19, up to 1984, at one point, we asked a panel of three expert psychiatrists to go to review the files of all of the people in New Jersey's maximum security facility who had been found not guilty by reason of insanity to see if there was any question as to whether or not they were seriously mentally ill. Every single person was. In three cases, the doctors disagreed as to what the diagnosis was, but there was not a single person there who was not. On the question of it being only for rich people, uh, the reality is, is that the insanity defense is pled proportionally in cases involving the public defender in exactly the same way that how many cases in any jurisdiction are represented by the public defender. There's no difference in that. The, the myth that it's only in murder cases 
there is a death of a victim in only about a third of all insanity defense cases. That includes murder, manslaughter, vehicular homicide, you name it. Uh, so, in other words, everything that we everything that we believe about it is wrong. This is abetted uh, by the uh, by the hysterical media, uh, and or that part of the media that is hysterical, and is picked up on by politicians. Uh, in in the first chapter of my book. Uh, and, I, and I wrote this over 20 years ago, so my memory's a little bit vague. Uh, I go through uh, the debate in Congress on the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 and just sort of point out how everything that was asserted, both by United States senators on the floor of Congress and by witnesses, was demonstrably wrong. So it, it, it really is key, isn't it, that uh, public perception uh, is, I mean, the idea that you've pled insanity somehow or other you're skiving your responsibility you know what it is Annie I'll tell you what it is I am sure you and me there have been times I mean it may have gone back to like when we were in school we would say to ourselves I'd like to kill that son of a bitch (laughs) right I mean somebody who was nasty to you when you were 15 when you were 20 whatever you've said those words everyone has said those words but you didn't do it we're good boys and girls Hmm. When other people do it, it's like they're getting away with something that we uh, suppressed, stopped ourselves from doing. That's I right. think it's that. Ah. Hmm. That's interesting because uh, I know that uh, the reaction here from an organization called SANE about uh, the movie, that, that recent James McAvoy movie, uh, where the man had many um, personalities, they actually. I don't put, know the movie. No, I don't no, know the movie. No, 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 but they put out a. Pre- they were so annoyed that they put out a press release saying that, uh, you know, mental health isn't a horror movie. Basically, I mean, right? No, exactly. And 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 we think of it as a horror movie. You're absolutely right. I mean, we think of it like Friday the Thirteenth or something, and uh, it's it, it's really, you know, it, you know, the whole notion: if it bleeds, it leads, right? Mm. I mean, so much of it comes from, and that's changed. In the last 20 years, uh, a colleague of mine and I have written a book very recently, actually published it last month, about sex offender law. And we talk about how media distortions have driven not only what legislators do, but what judges do in individual cases. Mm. Well, it's interesting, too. That That is a very sensitive issue because, uh, in actual fact, I was just reading in a book, at, uh, it was just an insignificant book, but it was talking about, and it was written 20 years ago, but it was talking about uh, the idea that normalising uh, this kind of panic uh, fear uh, thing yes. that's going on. It's called moral panic. Yeah, Mor- moral, moral panic. panic. And making it an, uh, the normal uh, political state of being. Now, the thing about sex mm-hmm. offenders is a perfect example of this because they, whenever uh, someone wants to make the community frightened, they then start doing talking about things like having a public lists of where uh, pedophiles right. live. But then, on the other hand, even well, that... Even, excuse me, I'm going to interrupt you. Just saying pedophiles, a very, very small percentage of all people who come under sex offender registries are pedophiles. Mm. And also, in some, in some jurisdictions, the majority of people who are arrested for sex offense are teenagers sexting pictures of themselves to their boyfriends and girlfriends. Oh my God! So I was yeah. going to say yeah. that—that's to do. It, it, so it completely crosses over into the uh, control mechanisms of different uh, yeah. understandings amongst the community. 
Absolutely. That's ludicrous. Uh, and, you know, there's this whole notion. Uh, I, do, do you get the TV show of one order SVU here? Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that shown here? Yeah, yeah. dreadful. And, you know, you know the, the common wisdom from that is that, you know, they're all, they're all recidivists. Mm. Uh, the reality is that uh, sex offender recidivism is actually far lower than most other recidivisms. Uh, the United States Supreme Court picked up uh, some years ago on and, and a citation that said, well, you know, something like 50%, 60%. The reality is that the, the actuary numbers are somewhere between 35 three to 8%. Uh, the, the, the study that the, that the Supreme Court relied on that has shaped all of our laws for the last 15 years comes from one article in a not in a valid, reliable, peer-reviewed research, but in a popular journal. And the guy was just talking about one sex offender group he ran. Oh my goodness! Oh, which I was is sort of like saying, which is sort of like saying, if I go to the if I go to the basketball court and I make three three-point shots in a row, you can say that everybody over the age of sixty always has a perfect three-point range. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do know. And why is uh, the irrational? Uh, trumping the rational. If I knew that, you got to be a lot smarter than me to answer that. We we because back to the vividness heuristic. We know, and there's valid and reliable evidence on this. Negative always overwhelms positive. If you if 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 you're you know I'm not sure we have Fox News. I don't know what your version of Fox News is in Australia, mm. but if they run one story at eleven o'clock that says of you know, mental patients committed a crime, whatever, you're going to think all mental patients are always going to commit crimes. Uh, the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of research studies that have been validated, that have been found to be reliable, that say not, people ignore it. That's boring. It's difficult. It uses big words. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like shark attacks here. If someone, there's a shark attack, then um, the news yes, continues. Great, to idea, sh- great, great, great example. A shark attack. No, that's absolutely perfect. We are more scared of sharks then, you know, uh, uh, this morning, I, I got to the wrong side of the street for a tram, and I come from the U.S. where you drive on the right, not on the left, yeah, like yeah. you do here. I almost walked into traffic, mm. you know? It, I mean, walking, you know, crossing the street is much more dangerous than a shark. I mean, people were so scared about, about plane crashes. Uh, the, the, the most dangerous part of any plane trip is driving to the airport. What do you think is the most uh, positive uh uh, potential for uh, a better understanding is the law actually grappling with some of these uh, difficulties for people with mental health uh, it's hard i mean the answer is sort of yes and yes and no um we do know that people lose their bias when they are when they deal with people of any out group in a regular basis in the community i mean we, we do know that we've known that for years so the more people are integrated or mainstreamed, it's going to end it a little bit. But what we need are politicians who aren't who aren't cowards. Yeah. Okay. We yeah. need a politician to stand up and say this is all bullshit. Mm. Hey, oh, Christ, um, I'm being taped. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, it's it's all right. It's it's a bit like that thing about uh, when people have personal experience that they just turn around. What they do is turned around. Yeah. It's right. Quite. And odd. it's funny because I have. You know, here's something interesting. I have nobody in my family uh, who is uh, who has uh, a mental disability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have nobody in my family who has ever been in an institution or anything like that. And so many people can't quite understand why I have chosen 
to devote my career to it. They can't understand why I am. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Why I, do. I, why I have done that? Because we don't have that kind of empathy that we need, you know, to, to, to for that to make sense. No, it's interesting to me because uh, my brother, my brother, he uh, he's a lawyer, but uh, he wasn't uh, doing any law really. And then the thing that, because he was conflicted about the nature of law and how it was actually helpful to people, or rather than an oppressive mm-hmm. instrument. And the thing that brought him back to the law was spending eight years working for a woman who was mentally disabled. Uh, defending her right to her inheritance from her greedy relatives. How interesting. And I they mean, won. Cases, I've never, <laughs> that's about the only kind of mental disability case I've never done. Uh, but it, it's, it's, I, I've always, and I'm, I'm so glad your brother got back into it, all my career since I was 25 out of law school has been in the representation of people who are marginalized, the other. Yeah. And certainly people with mental disabilities are about as good of an example of that as you can find anywhere. And uh, it, it's, 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 it's wonderful that there's not nearly enough lawyers. I mean, that's sort of another, another page here that there, you know, everyone says, oh, there are too many lawyers. And there may be in some Corporate areas, lawyers. I, I don't know, but there are certainly not enough to represent here. I learned since I've been here that only a third of people in Victoria have representation when that's they right. appear before the Mental Health Review Tribunal, whatever it's called. I think that's monstrous. I think everyone has an absolute right to a lawyer, if, if it is possible, pardon me, that their liberty might be lost. Uh, and I understand in some of the other states in Australia, the, the, the numbers are much lower. I think that's, I, I, I think that's unconscionable. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... We want to hear from you. Our station is all about serving the community and we want to know your thoughts, comments and ideas to help shape our future. We're currently asking listeners to take part in a short online survey that will help us get to know you better and understand what you want from your local radio service. The results of this survey will assist us in continuing to be the best possible station we can be in service of our valued community. To have your voice heard, head to our website and fill out the survey. That's right. Do it. Do it immediately. Participate. To participate. Don't tell. Don't say we didn't give you anything. Yeah, but you can. If you go on to the survey, then you can maybe say something like that. That's exactly right. Exactly right. We're not twisting your arm. But, uh, yeah, 3CR needs uh, you to show uh, that you're listening. In fact, uh, when you walk along the uh, corridor here, there's all these uh, uh, disembodied ears floating from the ceiling to remind us to ask you them with great respect our listeners to Oh, is that what that's for? That's not like, you know, the government's <laughs> listening, be careful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's funny, isn't it? Because uh, it's like the me- metadata uh, legislation that's just been passed. It's fascinating to realise that uh, there's these, I think it's 22... Uh, 
22 government uh, outfits that have got uh, access to that metadata information about people, what's on their, you know, their phone calls and their emails and stuff, what the, who they're, where they are and what they're doing at any particular time. And it's all for national security. But did you know that the ABCC has uh, the ability to get temporary licence to have access without warrant? Oh, really? Isn't that interesting? It's uh, so draconian. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this was also uh, other other places as well, you know, like uh, this was funny, the, uh, the uh, Victorian Gra- uh, Greyhound Association has the ability to do a temporary uh, ask for uh, that kind of information. Isn't that interesting? So can private corporations ask for that? Sort of I, I, no, I don't think I don't believe so. But it's interesting, isn't it? That mm. uh, it just it's it just seeps within the system, you know. I think it uh, comes from having someone like George Brandis as our head honcho legal person. <laughs> yeah. I just, it's like a, a oxymoron for me that. Yeah, he doesn't like other people listening into his business, no, does he? <laughs> That's exactly business. right. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, got to remind people that uh, the uh, uh, Palm Sunday rally is happening tomorrow. Yeah, that's right, and it's, it starts at two o'clock at the uh, Victorian State Library. That's I believe right. so. I'm going. Yes, I should actually check. We'll that. see you there. I often just turn up to protests, and I just assume they're at the State Library. No, they are because I wrote it down. Good. Yeah, no, that is actually true. We're on radio. I said it on radio, so it must be true. <laughs> it's like it's on TV. It must be true. Uh, oh, did you hear about uh, The Age saying that it's going to become a well, – I didn't have a public statement saying it was going to become a right-wing a right wing rag uh, impersonating toilet paper. No, it said it was going to get rid of a whole lot of more staff. So the, we're expecting that no investigative reporting will happen and that they're going to focus on – News and uh, business and entertainment, and I was oh thinking- fabulous because we need more of that. I mean, <laughs> already I don't pick up the age because it's just like ad, 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 or what looks like an ad. Where is the content? Oh, I can't be bothered uh, now. And not only that, a majority of their uh, reportage appears to be lifts from other uh, other newspapers like Washington Post and places like that. You know, like uh, you know how this whole idea of having the electronic age is going to make everything more interesting, and there's going to be more elements. All it's meant when it comes to uh, media output, especially in things like investigative journalism or journalism in general, is get rid of a whole lot of workers and reporters, people who actually go and get the data, and uh, just keep repeating this across your syndicate. Mm. Uh, the same stories over and over and over again. So, Well, I thought that, you know, the distribution costs that they cut from delivering online were meant to go into a better product, but apparently not. No, that's exactly right. It doesn't fit into the business model. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Anyway, uh, now, is there any, are there any other things that you want to, uh, any other events that need to be spoken about besides, of course, the Marxist Conference, which is coming up on the Easter weekend. Yes, I'm looking around the studio. Well, I for signs. Th- there was a there is a thing about the West Palpuan Open Day down at their office, which is down at Docklands. It's going to be on the twenty second, I believe, of uh, April. So uh, I'll 
confirm those details after you have a listen to this chat that I did with uh, Liam Ward and and this fascinating uh, look at uh, our past, a piece of industrial history, uh, the uh, Chinese furniture workers in the 1880 Victoria. The film I made, or the, the focus of the project overall was about uh, sort of radical histories on screen and so I was focused on a sort of alternative history of Melbourne, you know, the history of Melbourne that doesn't often get spoken about. It's, there are some good books published, but um, it's, it's rarely represented on screen. So that was my broad sort of umbrella. And within that, I focused in narrowly on uh, the um, stories of uh, or issues of race in Melbourne, race and class. And so I was particularly focused on uh, the experiences of Chinese furniture makers in Melbourne around the turn of the last century. And some people may be aware that uh, we had such a uh, strong uh, racist uh, uh, outlook at that time that when furniture was made by Chinese people, it had to be branded as such and was sold at a cheaper rate. Mm-hmm. There was a series of laws passed, in it, or the Victorian government attempted to pass a series of laws. They finally did in, I think it was 1896, and this meant that, yeah, as you say, all of the furniture that was produced in Melbourne for any kind of retail sale had to be branded with either one of one of two stamps. It either said made with European labour or made with Chinese labour. And those, those laws were in place right up until the 1960s. So you can still find, you know, if you trawl through the second-hand furniture shops around Melbourne, you'll still sometimes find uh, pieces of furniture with those stamps on them. Tell us about what you said in your film, how you created the film. How did you go about it? Because you told me it's actually in uh, Chinese, isn't it? Subtitled with English. It's in, yeah, well, there's two Cantonese. narrations. There's two narrators. Yeah. Uh, one of them is, as you say, Cantonese. He's a fictional character. Now, the other one is myself talking about my family history. So the reason for doing this, I guess, was because for me, the political questions around the relationship of organised labour in Melbourne uh, to these questions of the Chinese exclusion laws and the white Australia policy uh, was something I was particularly interested in. Uh, on my father's side, there's a long history of trade union and ALP activism. And on my mum's side, as it just so happened, her grandfather uh, did an apprenticeship as a furniture maker. He didn't work as one later on. He did, did an apprenticeship. And my mum still has a couch that he made uh, in the back shed in 1916. Uh, wow. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I've seen this couch all my life. It's kind of a rat's nest now. Uh, but somewhere on that sh- on that couch, there will, if it's made in compliance with the law, there should be a stamp saying made with European labour. So this question of the sort of intersection, I guess, between um, you know organised labour and racism and these discriminatory laws, uh, all of that stuff was sort of I could see it kind of being expressed in various ways through my family history. So so part of the film was me talking about that stuff. And the other part of the film is, is this fictionalised Chinese narrator who's talking uh, in Cantonese. Um, it's a bit of a first-hand account of um, the, particularly the organising and strikes that were undertaken by these, those Chinese furniture makers in Melbourne between 1880 and 1910. Oh, that's really fascinating to me because uh, I did some uh, slight research when I was down in Warrnambool, which is the town I was brought up in. And I noticed when I was doing some stuff down at the Historical Society and I noticed that uh, when uh, the Federation happened and there was the celebrations of Federation that about 200 Chinese nationals who lived in around Warrnambool and ran a lot of the market gardens and other things around the in, in this town went up to celebrate 
even though they were excluded as citizens and were unable to vote. So they obviously were an aspirational uh, community, and that's also expressed here, isn't it, in the industrial actions that they took? It is, and in a particularly important way, I think, because it's about these workers reaching out to show solidarity with other workers and to identify themselves as part of the the organised labour movement. Um, So, for example, during the Great Strikes in the 1890s, there was a series of actions that the film touches on uh, where these Chinese furniture makers reached out to offer donations or to show solidarity with, um, you know, the shearers and the maritime workers. This is where it gets interesting, though. So they saw themselves as, yeah, they wanted to be part of the community, especially when when the workers' movement at large was moving. You know, when there were strikes happening, when they were surging forward, these Chinese workers saw themselves as part of that struggle and part of that kind of wave of, of rebellion and resistance. And um, the response they got from the sort of mainstream labour movement is revealing. You know, there was... So, for example, at one point they made a donation, they sent a, a donation to Victorian Trades Hall, which was supposed to be for the striking maritime workers. Trades Hall accepted that gratefully, but then they returned it later on because they returned the money later on uh, because the white furniture makers union uh, complained about uh, this donation they said we didn't you know we shouldn't be supporting these chinese workers so Th- this is really compelling especially in the situation that workers find themselves today mm. oh definitely in fact the laws is you know well, who knows what's coming down the line but you've only got to look at the sort of islamophobia um you know the various governments around the world trying to ban people on the basis of, which is basically because they're Muslim. Um, the Australian government's long-standing practice of, um, well, most obviously there's the issue of refugees and the detention centres and the torture and the ongoing cruelty there, but there's also the issues such as the 457 visa, uh, which is essentially a form of indentured labour where um, employers, if they you know, can pay, can pay some workers less or treat them with less, or, you know, give them less rights or, or feel less pressured even to grant them rights that they should be entitled to um, on the, you know, solely on the basis of their nationality. So these questions about race and what attitude we take to you know, how we form solidarity and how we fight for it across the various borders and boundaries that our rulers put in front of us is still a pressing question, I think. Yeah, because what's really being said is that uh, by dividing, they conquer. They do. It is classic divide and rule. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's fascinating to think that uh, this story, uh, that the story of the Chinese workers has basically been excised, except, I presume, amongst their own fellows. Uh, partly, yes. I mean, some of the history in, in Chinese Melbournians has been a bit hard to find. Um, there's been some great work done by a Taiwanese-based scholar called Mei Fin Guo, who was working out here. She did a fellowship out here. I can't remember if it was Latrobe or, or Monash. She did a fellowship out here a few years ago and produced two great books about Chinese-Australian history with some great stuff about uh, Chinese people in Melbourne. So there's some very interesting stuff in there, some really good research. She had access to the Chinese language archives of the Australasian Guomindang that a lot of the English language historians uh, hadn't had access to or perhaps even hadn't thought they wanted access to. I mean, there's a whole other question there about, you know. Um, so she's produced some great work. It's still the case, though, that issues of class, you know, it's, uh, these sort of mainstream academic historians don't necessarily get class the same way that the people inside the workers' movement do. And I think the history that really needs to be told and needs to be written is not about Chinese Melburnians or Chinese Australians at large. It specifically needs to be about Chinese workers in Australia, their history, their struggles, you know, their relationship to the broader labour movement, etc. 
It's like t- taking the heart, the, the beating heart is taken out when they uh, d- t- decide that they're going to remove class, the issues of class, or and uh, reduce it to uh, individuality. That's definitely true. There are some, you know, there are some sort of celebrated Chinese Melburnians who you can, you can pick up any book uh, about the Chinese in Australia, and you'll find reference uh, to some of these people um, who were often, uh, you know, diplomats or business people, and they're held up as these sort of shining paragons of um, everything that, that the Chinese Australian community kind of could be. You know, if only they were, if only they were a bit richer, if only they were a bit or more well behaved. You know, yeah, exactly. European. Wider, you know? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. that's a bit rude. Really. No, no, but it's but it, it is. This thread runs through it all. It's you know some of these some of these. Well, to give you a bit of a flavour for it, um, the Chinese Australian merchants. Uh, his name's escaping me at the moment, I'm afraid, but some of these most famous merchants in these, in through the late sort of second half of the 19th century uh, well, came out, came out scathing, with scathing responses to the rebellions of Chinese diggers on the gold fields. Uh. So when the Chinese on the gold fields were fighting against the racist exclusion laws and the licensing laws back in the 1850s... Oh, and, and the 1850s, murders. And the murders, that's right. Uh, through the 50s and 60s, 1850s and 60s... Um, some of the journalists in Melbourne uh, put a bit of pressure on these Chinese merchants in Melbourne to distance themselves from it all, and of course they did. They couldn't wait to. You know, I think, we, again, we see this same dynamic today. Whenever we have a minority group that becomes sort of targeted as the enemy, um, there's a pressure on the kind of more moderate community leaders, respectable leaders, to distance themselves from any sense of rebellion. You've only got to look at the pressure that comes on uh, uh, Muslim leaders around Australia today to distance themselves from any hint of of any kind of resistance or rebellion, uh, and you get a sense for the, the continuing uh, dynamic. Whoa, 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 Oh, you 
What about that? That's 10,000 reasons to re- rebel and fight. And uh, the reason for why I put that on was because when I talked to Liam Ward, and that's who we were just listening to, about his film uh, documentary about, uh, uh, well, the intersection between uh, 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 industrial relations, racism, and uh, Chinese furniture makers in the 1880s, very important stuff. Uh, he said that he had to synthesise a lot of the material because there's no actual documentary evidence of all this except for, you know, uh, bits and pieces. There's no film or anything of that nature. Uh, and he uses, in his soundtrack, he fa- he discovered all these fabulous political uh, punk and uh, hip-hop artists in the Asian region. Like there's heaps of them, like uh, Hong Kong, uh, China, and uh, Taiwan, there's these people who are uh, real rads. And that particular uh, track was actually full-blown punks in China uh, singing this oi, oi, oi stuff. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really quite a fun thing. To, and so I thought I'd share it with you. Yeah, and we've just wanted to reiterate uh, that Annie was right. There is an open day for the West Papua Rent Collective, and that's on Saturday the 22nd of April, 1 to 3 p.m. at the West Papua office, which is 838 Collins Street, Docklands. Yeah, very worthy cause. It's all about, um, and they've got speakers, haven't they? They do have speakers. I think it's, uh, uh, they're talking about uh, uh, various, they're quite progressive. Uh, remember we came, we gave you a report about how they're doing a walk from uh, Geelong to Footscray coming up soon. That's uh April the 26th, and we'll hopefully do a live cross to them as they do that walk. Uh, that the, It's a symbolic, not only is it to stop at communities and chat with people, but about the issues of the uh, uh, genocide on our doorsteps. But it tell, it's showing people in a symbolic fashion how close we actually are to West Palpeville, because that's the distance between... Uh, between uh, Australia, uh, the first island that uh, is considered to be uh, Australian uh, landfall and West Papua. So anyway, the Rent Collective, they that's a group of people who put money in to keep the office running down at uh, Docklands. If you want to know more about the West Papua struggle and be part of it because they're a wonderful and lively community, then uh, this is the best way to go. Go down there on the 22nd of April. Uh, now, the very famous and loved fellow Kevin Healy. This is the week that was. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the quest for world peace took a giant step forward to coin a cliche as US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the paw, admitted achieving peace in evil, evil Syria was now my responsibility. Didn't explain why, but that would be stating the obvious. The big supremo of the US of the world is responsible for peace throughout the world. Throughout his, always be to him, his empire. And the world reflects what a huge success that has been. 
and the U.S. Arb Secretary for World State Rex Killamson said the U.S. Arb may have to move into evil, evil Syria over and above the bombing raids it does now and do a quick mop-up, quick regime change, and no doubt that can be done. Don't forget former U.S. Arb Big Supremo George W. Bash the workers declaring mission accomplished in full trained killer regalia on a trained killer killer ship just up New York or wherever and Iraq and Afghanistan are prime examples of the US of trained killing for peace and mopping up quickly. Why they could be out of Afghanistan and Iraq any time now, just 16 years later, although when the US of assures us through its misnomered intelligence that evil, evil Syria, for instance, has done terrible, terrible things, for some reason, my mind runs to that girl in the Iraq hospital, babies thrown on the ground, and later turned out she was part of a US of misinformation setup conspiracy, but only, of course, for valid, peaceful reasons, in order to train to kill, regime change, and mop up quickly in the quest for world peace. And evil, evil Syria may be doing the terrible things, because terrible things are happening, but hard as it is to believe, I'm not prepared to take the US OBS word for it. And Rex says the US OBS may have to invade North Korea simultaneously. See, Donald is also responsible for peace there, and North Korea, home of the succession of great and beloved leaders, keeps complaining just because the US OBS carries out war games on its border and then fires a few penny bungers or skyrockets or something a couple of hundred yards out to sea, which the US OBS says is a threat to the US OBS and world peace, and it may have to fire a few somewhat more lethal nuclear missiles across the Pacific to teach North Korea a lesson or two or wipe it out, whichever comes first. Steps are underway. Rex spoke as a man of peace. As I said to the president and presidents before him, what's good for ExxonMobil is good for the world. Uh, don't you mean what's good for the US of? Isn't that what I said? And the US of, having spoken, our very own big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull echoed the peace-loving sentiments. The world must act on evil, evil Syria. He displayed our true independence, the world naturally being the US of the world, with true blue Aussie bouncing along on its coattails. From peace and tranquility to storms back here. Last week we commented on that wonderfully natural shot of Malcolm and Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition smiling together, pushing water out of a building with these giant brooms while staring at the camera and reflected on how much better that would make people feel. Well, this week Malcolm dropped into Rockhampton to make the people feel better that they were about to be inundated. No, not with self-seeking politicians, but water. And surely, unless he had mastered the King Canute theory and can turn back the waters, he was useless, as it turned out. Contribution zilch. And little Billy sloshed and waded around in the mud of the receding waters further south. Contribution ditto. On storms and wind and nothing to do with climate change, I've complained time and again. The subjects of this segment keep trying to do me out of a job, if this could be called a job, as their comments seem so satirical, satire can't compete. 
This week, former Productivity Profits Commission Supremo Gary Banks. Real name, and again, how can we satirise that in a devotee of the greatest little economic order of them all? Banks. Addressing Infrastructure Profits Partnerships, True Blue attacked governments... I think mostly state socialist governments like South True Blue Aussie for creating the energy crisis, soaring energy prices by this renewable energy nonsense. And here's the satire can't compete line. The South True Blue Aussie Supremo blaming the private sector for soaring energy costs, direct quote, took the wind out of my sails. <laughs> and only the most naive would suggest the private sector taking over from government has been anything but a roaring success. The roaring 40s, putting wind back into Gary's sails and the bank's bank account. Speaking of banks, stroke of bad luck for borrowers last week when the banks were forced to jack up interest rates. Oh, I hear you say, didn't realise the Reserve Bank had increased the rate. Well, no, it didn't. The US of Fed put up interest rates in the US of. And our banks instantly explained why this meant they had no choice but. As logical an explanation as when they explain why they can't reduce interest rates when the Reserve Bank lowers them. Just another example showing how difficult it is for we mere common folk to comprehend the greatest little economic order of them all. And a small correction. Last week I suggested we address unemployment by adopting the Belarus policy to eradicate unemployment by fining the unemployed for being unemployed. That'd stop them being a drain on the public purse we pointed out. But I want to point out this week, they don't practice the policy without compassion. You have to be unemployed for several weeks before they fine you. And we all know the unemployed would have ample resources to pay the fine, and there's no way caring employers would exploit them. I need a job by tomorrow or I'll be fined. Sure, sure, I can help you. And then the caring employer would offer the maximum possible in wages and conditions because caring employers would never exploit that opportunity. Hope this isn't true, because the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin is a great source of vital information for this segment, as I'm sure you know, listener. But its latest daily attack on the Dan pejorative socialist government, elected because we got it so wrong, for which Lord Rupert is not prepared to forgive us, latest attack is on this Respectful Relationship Schools program. The Wapping Sin concerned fairy tales may be banned, or at best, or worse, we guess, gender stereotypes questioned. It's a worry, the banning fairy tales bit, because they'd have to ban the whopping sin. Its concern is clearly self-preservation. And top marks for a brilliant headline. Dunce upon a time. <laughs> Get it? Clever, clever. Although, damn the dunce would have been alliterative. Bit surprised, though, we haven't seen a line in the Wapping Sin or the Lord Rupert media generally about the sacking of former Socialist Party Supremo Mark lay into them for laying into them. OK, everything he said was despicable, sexist, homophobic, you name it. We wouldn't agree with a word, but... Lord Rupert and his team of hacks are the biggest supporters of our innate right to offend, insult and humiliate, our right to free speech... 
and dead mark offend, insult and humiliate. They should have been cheering him. Whatever we think of what he said, he was exercising his right to offend, insult and humiliate, at which he's an expert. Even the usual suspect columnist who attacks the evil left for opposing free speech, for blocking speakers whose views the usual suspect hacks so admires, hasn't written a word defending poor Mark. Can't understand it after all. The usual suspect has his own program on the Lord Rupert channel that sacked poor Mark. Oh, oh maybe that explains it. Perhaps Lord Rupert's defence of free speech doesn't apply to... Lord Rupert, although the usual suspect hack wouldn't let that influence him, uh, would he? Back on Malcolm and Little Billy, top marks to the Socialist Party after spending eons attacking Malcolm and the team for promoting tax cuts for the filthy rich while attempting to slash services for the very unrich. Now the tax cut bid has been achieved, the Socialists will promise to rescind it if they are elected, we assume. Well, they'd do nothing less. Maybe even increase taxes on the filthy rich and, more importantly, make every effort to collect them because the filthy rich often, indeed more often than not, just forget to pay them. Well, well, they've got a lot on their minds trying to make the world a better place. Anyway, top marks, because Socialist Party economic guru Chris Bowen to Capital refused to commit to rescinding the tax cut. That's what we love about the socialists, isn't it? Don't we have to admire their courage? Then again, Caring Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Wastercut said the government had wasted a cut because a two-tier tax system wouldn't work and thus the Profits Council would be forced to continue campaigning for a bigger tax cut for all filthy rich, which to us listener comes as one hell of a surprise we'd, we'd never have thought. And finally... Also hard to believe, but Jennifer said, said it so it must be true, businesses, businesses would structure themselves to get below the 50 mil threshold, and therein lies the problem, she said. Business would plan for tax purposes rather than growth. It's a worry, isn't it? Although, although they've managed to grow while paying no tax at all, so I'm not sure I do see the problem. Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim for Solidarity Breakfast, and we have some guests today from the Feminist Educators Against Sexism. Uh, So we're going to be speaking to Dr Emily Gray and Professor Emily Blaze. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Would you be able... You've got to say good morning too. It's radio. It's Mindy. Mindy Blaze. Fantastic. (laughs) Would you be able to tell us something about uh, the collective that you have begun and the reasons uh, that you have uh, started this campaign? Well, you know, you said it was sexism is a slippery business. It is a business. It is very slippery in higher education. And we began this um, organization. It came from, um, I guess, a conference that the three of us, we have a third member who's also a part of one of the founding members, Linda um, Knight, and the three of us were at a conference, at an educational research conference, and um, 
when we were there, we kind of noticed that there was a lot of sexism going on and it was getting us very um, frustrated. So we came up with some ideas of doing some humorous and irreverent sort of actions to try and challenge the everyday sexism that we were experiencing. Yeah, so we worked um, with women at workshops, women academics, um, across the levels from level A to level D, uh, E, sorry. And um, What we- do the levels represent? Your pay scale. Ah, I see. <laughs> uh, and your status. So a level A would typically be uh, someone without um, a PhD, maybe a master's. Level B are usually early career people with PhDs up to level E, which is a professor. And so one of the things, if you look at um, statistical research that's been done, is that the higher the level, the smaller the numbers of women mm. in those positions. Um, So the workshop aimed uh, to get women's experiences of sexism, um, both structural sexism, so institution-based, something that's part of higher education, and also everyday sexism, so smaller uh, instances of sexist uh, experiences that they'd had in their workplace. Would you be able to describe some of the structural, for people who are not in higher education, some of the issues that face women in the industry? So I've just got this little statistics that that you've given me, which is it's a female-dominated profession and only 16% um, of the education uh, professionate are women. Yeah, so um, the... If it, there's, there's research that's been done, as I said, that shows the higher the, the level, the fewer women there are. Um, there's, there's stuff around women um, feeling that they are looked over for promotion, um, particularly in those higher levels. Also in terms of research-only positions, that's something that, that women aren't necessarily offered as often as men. That was certainly one of the perceptions um, that... that that we had. I heard this oh, statistic. I just have to say that um, Lindy's joined the line. Oh, hello. Are hello. You there? <laughs> there she is. Hi, Linda. Hi, Linda. Hi. It's lovely to have you on. I was just going to rattle off a statistic that I heard, which is that apparently there are more men whose name is Robert who get ACR grants than women <laughs> in general, the whole category, and that's probably true of John's and other names as well. Well, it's actually really interesting, this uh, paper that you uh, sent out to us to read as a backgrounder. The the whole thing about sexism, which is really fascinating to me, is that, yes, it's been a long struggle. It's been pointed out. People have... And now, apparently, racism and sexism is just, oh, so passe, so old-fashioned. Why should we be bothered with it now? Yeah, and I think that um, sexism, in that article, um, Sarah Ahmed talks about slippery sexism, and sexism is always happening, but women often have a hard time pinning it down because it is so slippery. So part of our project was about bringing women together for them to begin to pin down that sexism so that we could look at it from different angles and try and figure out different kinds of ways of addressing it in our everyday experiences with it. Well, one of the things that you point out, or that paper points out, which is so fascinating because it's an, it explains why we have academics when people actually think these things through, people feel it inside themselves. Sexism makes it costly for women to speak about sexism while it rewards uh, sexism, sexist behaviour. So it's systemic. 
Yes, it is. It is. And I guess it's one of the things about our project was that it created a safe space for women to talk about sexism. And we came together as a collective and the collective keeps growing. We started just with three members and now we have almost 400. We have a closed Facebook site mm -hmm. that's full of um, feminist educators against sexism across the world. And um, it is about us coming together and being able to talk about sexism and figure out ways that we can address it even though it does slip right through our hands. Now you're from uh, uh, Victoria University, yes. Mindy, and Emily you're from RMIT. Yes. Uh, Linda, you're from Queensland uh, University. Yes. Are you finding similar things going on there? Yes, I think when we put our, our heads together to kind of construct the project we realised that this was, this was kind of endemic to um, uh, at the time, we were just thinking of Australian context, but of course it's global um, because universities, the systems that are, operate w within universities and what universities operate through are, are quite kind of similar across across the world. Um, and uh, we realised that it was so kind of embedded within our daily our daily uh, experience of our workplace that sometimes sometimes we could spot it and sometimes we couldn't. Um, and um, and we kind of uh, women get kind of they just get really quite tired of having to, to put their finger on it all the time. Um, and we realised that um, we ourselves were allowing things to kind of pass us by or allowing things to wash over us. Um, but it, it wasn't a great situation um, and certainly uh, certainly kind of contributed to our, our experience of our working life and that really we needed to do something that, that um, paid attention to that extra thing that women have to deal with on top of the daily... Um, pressures of being an academic. On top of that, I have read some articles recently, I think they're from the UK, talking about the rates of sexual harassment of mm. female academics. And I think a lot of that is partly to do with this huge power imbalance. You get a lot of casualised people, a lot of them women, yeah. and pro tenured professors who have quite a lot of power. And I think that those arrangements appear to encourage that kind of closed culture where people get moved around rather than moved on. Is that something you've encountered? Um, well, a survey was just released yesterday, I think, that looks at the situation in Australia on those issues. I haven't read it yet. Um, so it's not something that we looked at in our project. No, no. What sort of response is Oh, sorry. I was just going to say one one of the things that we particularly wanted to do with the project and I think have done uh, quite well so far is we wanted to be really affirmative. Um, and so um, there are lots of really um, valuable spaces where women can talk about the pressures of their of their working experiences and their life experiences. But one thing we really wanted to do was kind of have, have a project that was about um, how the arts um, how the arts can help um, provide a platform for, for a voice, but also to do something that was quite um, irreverent and, um, and affirmative in terms of it being um, uh, uh, something that people would want to want to participate in because it's it, it, it's a bit of a um, Oh, I can't, I don't fun. Want to be on the radio. <laughs> no, no, no. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Some of the fun things. <laughs> so, so you know, we devised a number of interventions, and this was the first kind of the role, the first rollout that we did, and we we were quite quite bowled over with the way it was taken up by 
by participants. We, we chose a, a, a large education conference in Australia um, and um, we kind of did a number of these kind of interventions, um, these pop-ups, if you like, whereby um, we kind of uh, nailed down this slippery sexism temporarily um, and we did that through these kind of fun arts-based interventions not to say they weren't serious, but to actually just approach the project in a, or approach the issue, rather, in a slightly different way. Um, and um, we were quite astounded by the the energy um, and the participation rates of people who wanted, who wanted to kind of, um, you know, kind of be irreverent, be jokey, but also have some really quite serious commentary on their, you know, their experiences. Um, so we did things like bingo, we did stand-up comedy, we, we kind of took the notion of the entrepreneurial academic to a, a re, an irreverent level. So, you know, we, we handed out business cards and we wore ban, uh, branded T-shirts um, and we did just lots of things. And I think that's the, um, that's the reason why the project has generated some interest in, and a great, a great kind of collective um, membership because it because of its slightly different approach to, to dealing with the problem. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we're talking about the slippery nature of sexism and how you can deal with it in a comedic... In fact, actually I was saying to somebody last night, it would be really funny. Sexism would be really funny if it wasn't serious. Mm, yes. Um, I see that uh, Emily and Mindy have some of these bingo cards. Do you think you could describe some of the behaviours that uh, get bingo? Yes, we can. Our bingo cards were created by the women's experiences. So Emily had mentioned that we brought together women and we held a workshop. And at this workshop, they shared with us some of the things that they've experienced, either at conferences or in their everyday work life. And so we took those and we created a bingo card. And we handed out bingo cards during the conference to everyone. And the idea was that you played bingo. And then if you, um, you know, either got a line or blacked it out, then you won a prize. So some of the things on bingo, and we call it our sexist, anti-sexist bingo. So um, here are some of the items. The majority of panelists are male. A man told me this bingo card was sexist. A man talks... <laughs> a man, I love that. A man talks to your chest. A man interrupts a woman mid-sentence. My opinions on a topic were dismissed. Senior male scholar is scheduled in the last conference slot. I stood with a group of people, but no one spoke to me. I was referred to as a girl. Oh. My favorite, though, a man explains my disciplinary research expertise to me. Oh. Um, the person I talk to isn't really listening to me as they are looking out for someone more important or influential to talk to. Mm. So these are some of the, um, the, the things that women talked about, so they were on the bingo card. One of the interesting aspects that I found was um, overhearing um, a colleague who told us that she didn't sign up because we put out a call, an expression of interest for women who were part of the organization. So the Australian Association for Research and Education funded this project. And so we put out a call to all of the women members and we said, if you've experienced um, sexism in your daily life, you are eligible to come and take part in the workshop. And she, this, this colleague said that she didn't take part in the workshop because she didn't feel like that she had ever experienced sexism in the workplace. 
But it was when she looked at the bingo cards that she realized that all of these things she had experienced and that they were forms of sexism. So I thought that was really, really interesting that highly educated women are thinking, are not being able to recognize that these these things that are happening to them are part mm-hmm. of sexism. It's the nature of the beast because it's a social mechanism. Yes. And that's the point of this whole mm-hmm. whole process. I mean, you're talking about how you deal with it by exposing it in a humorous fashion mm-hmm. and uh, by... In fact, at an intelligent fashion, because as you, as it's pointed out, if someone mentions sexism, then they become the problem. Mm. And in fact, the one that you are perceived, uh, when you perceive something is wrong, then you are the person that becomes the wrong thing. Mm, yes. 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 It's fascinating, isn't it? It is. It is fascinating. Yeah. And it's not just sexism, it's racism. It's, it's the various thing-isms that our society uh, holds on to and it's actually about uh, it's um, they've uh, they uh, uh, take over the brain you know like it's a uh, the imperialism of a particular sort of of approach to life isn't it yes yeah Um, you don't just do bingo you did something else as well it was uh, this is what really attracted me to this it was this direct action with the plastic whistles. Oh. <laughs> I love this idea. <laughs> right in their face. So they were actually um, some of the prizes for the bingo. Um, so we um, we gave out uh, various prizes. One of them was a whistle to blow when no one's paying attention. Um, there were also little binoculars for spotting sexism, uh, notebooks for taking note of sexism, and um, a, a kind of a butterfly net for catching those elusive opportunities. Yeah, I would love a whistle because I have to say that being around the far left, I was quite shocked when I went to academic conferences and they would take questions and a man would get up and not ask a question and just pontificate for five minutes and then it would be questions <laughs> over. And I'd yep. go up to the chair and say, why isn't there a speaking limit? Why aren't you encouraging more women to speak? So I need a whistle. Yes, I'm well, just putting on notice. Yes, absolutely. Well, and what and that was actually one of the things that first got us interested in this was going to these um, sessions at a conference. And the first question is always the question that kind of sets the tone. And often, if it, if it was a man, the question was never a question. It was rarely asked of any of the women if there were if you know if there was a woman on the panel. And then the question just became all about that person. So we started to think, what if we as you know, what's something that we could do at the next conference? So maybe maybe what we should do is start going to these sessions and make sure that we are the first one who ans- who asks the question and we ask it of the woman and we ask a real question. So and that- so what happened? Well, I think this is did what did that we, work? Yes, I think it does it work, did, and that's yeah, what we've been doing. Did. And and at the conference, um, people in our feminist educators against sexism, some of them, especially early career researchers, um, requested that we come and sit and ask questions. So there were a few sessions where we were asked, invited to go to to be supportive. So we did that, and we yeah. sat with our t-shirts and. We supported our colleagues. Yes, every day we had an email list, and if someone wanted us to go, they sent the email. They 
if they had a particular question to ask, they wrote that question down. So we we also have a site club where members send round their publications to other members, and we uh, endeavour to cite one another or download the articles so that we get more. Well, that makes a impact big in inverted commas, but also makes a really big difference in the trajectory of your careers. Yes. Counter networks too. We have to acknowledge that a lot of these men already have networks. Absolutely. I just wanted to get your experiences uh, from Queensland on that, Linda. Have you had people, yes. what have the responses been there? Oh, it's been fantastic. So we've had, um, uh, we, we have a number of um, colleagues um, up here who are members of the um, FEES Collective, Feminist Educators Against Sexism, and we, um, we do um, swap stories um, <laughs> about our respective experiences. Um, what's interesting is that there have been a number of early career researchers who couldn't go to, based in Queensland, who couldn't go to the, the, big the conference that, um, because they, mm. they couldn't afford the, the um, flights and the subscription and so on, registration. Um, and what, what the, the feedback we got from those um, early career um, women in Queensland was that this was the first time they felt they had... Um, really been able to participate in a conference um, through our postings um, on social media and through our kind of um, email um, circulations every day. Um, and so in a kind of um, extended way, we were, we were bringing young women into this professional field um, in ways that they, you know, they just felt they, they weren't belonging to otherwise because of distance. So um, although, you know, although we're up here in Queensland, it's um, the particularly the social media um, platforms that we've built, we've got a Twitter page as well. Um, they help women um, in different states, including Queensland, to be a, a kind of part of a, a collective and part of a really a, a kind of agentic member of um, a, gr- a group that includes women across all levels of seniority. I mean, we do have we have women who are full professors. We have women who are kind of early career researchers. We've got uh, uh, women who are just starting in that career and doing their PhD. So, um, you know, it's it, particularly those women who are in different states have felt like they could participate and belong to something and be supported and um, share their experiences. So but also, ad- that also adds to the fact that creating those spaces becomes a research tool in itself, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the recent thing um, we've done is um, set up a survey um, portal uh, um, to generate um, material for the next stand-up comedy. Um, And um, we're looking at women's experiences of uh, student evaluation because there's some some research already about how women are, are often disadvantaged in that kind of evaluative process because they're judged in different ways to male male academics yeah those Um, so i think they call them ses scores here but they're not a terribly good indication they've found doing research on research (laughs) of what the teaching quality is naval gazing (laughs) but they are actually a really good indication of sexism oh that's fantastic outrageous yes so watch this space for our next stand-up comedy it will be about those evaluations but there's been interest internationally with your direct action approach tell us about that 
Um, so I'm also the international representative for the Gender and Education Association, which is a UK-based um, association for research into gender and education. Um, and it's their national conference this year, and they've invited us to come and uh, do our pop-up performances and run a workshop um, over there in London in June. So oh, that's, fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And And the Facebook page has got women from... All over the world, Saudi Arabia, we've had um, Iraqi women, we've had, um, you know, people from all of the Western contexts as well. So it's been amazing. Mm. I'd like to know the reaction. What I mean, this will be having a ripple effect. Does it have a wave effect? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let you know. <laughs> the tsunami. <laughs> It will have an effect. Uh. I mean, I can remember years ago uh, when they started to look at uh, judges' judgments in relation to sexist approaches by uh, judges. And I can remember a a fantastic person, I can't remember her name right now, but uh, she she used to do uh, training with judges. And uh, she was giving this story about how this particular judge, who's not a bad person or anything, was completely convinced that he was not influenced by uh, any sexist notions. And until he had done this course, because he was a good-hearted person, he was flummoxed by the level of sexist uh, attitude that he held. Mm. So you must be... uh, Yeah, it's quite a a fabulous thing that you guys have put on the armour and have taken on on the... uh, Big well, one, one wave, uh, one wave we did create. Uh, I know is that when when um, we we attended the conference last year, a lot of um, a lot of women put the fees logo in their powerpoints and wore their t-shirts to their presentations, and you could see this kind of smell uh, the fear. People, <laughs> yeah, so people were like, kept seeing it and kept seeing it and kept seeing it, and it was like, what is this thing that all these women have got? Um, got on their PowerPoint um, slides, you know, and they're wearing this T-shirt. And that generated a wave within the conference, for, for sure. And suddenly people were aware of this kind of undercurrent that was flowing through flowing through the conference, not just in the pop-ups, mm. which you could walk past and not participate in if you didn't want to, but, but to attend the, the papers, the academic sessions, and see this again and again certainly, certainly did... Uh, make a few people uncomfortable. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, good. Thanks for coming in and talking to us about this because this is a watching brief, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it we'll is. have you come back. Great, and tell us more yeah. about your hijinks. Excellent. We'd be happy to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Linda. I'm going to drop you off now. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks, Linda. Yeah. So thanks very much for coming in. Uh, We've been talking about the slippery nature of sexism. Uh, There's a couple of things. The person I was talking about was Jocelyn Scutt. Mm -hmm. Jocelyn Scutt's a fantastic Mm -hmm. uh, lawyer academic. And uh, the the other thing is we got a a bit of information about uh, the the event at the West Palpuan office the 22nd of the 4th uh, at the uh, West Palpuran office and it starts at 1pm with uh, lunch to 3pm. So there's a book launch uh, on important legal responsibility of sovereign states towards its people. So it's a big deal. And uh, have you got the address, uh, Kim, for... 
I do... Oh, yes, come on. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> it's down in Docklands. Oh, wait, I found it under yep. all my papers. Uh, it is 838 Collins Street, Docklands, and that's Saturday, April 22nd. That's right. And also they're suggesting that you check their Facebook uh, event and participate in the Walk for West Palpura, Geelong to Melbourne, 26th to the 30th of April, and we'll keep you posted about that. We're leaving because it's right at the end. We're right at the wire. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And I'm going to finish with Because I'm Awesome, the Dolly Motts. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.